0: Hello and welcome to the MBOM podcast, where you'll learn to master the business of yoga. MBOM is a proud part of the WanderBarn podcast network, and I'm your host, Amanda Kingsmith. I'm a 500-hour registered yoga teacher, a yoga business coach, and a total business geek. Here at MBOM, you'll learn everything you need to know to create a sustainable yoga business by learning from myself and guests from around the world about how they built their yoga businesses. And about how you too can become a successful yoga teacher, studio owner, and much more. All right, let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of the MBM Podcast. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Offering Tree. Offering Tree has set out to make digital marketing fun, easy, and affordable. They are your one-stop shop for a website, scheduling software, payment, email newsletter, and more. Stay tuned to hear more about them later in this episode. And now for this week's episode of the podcast, I am super excited to be joined by Peter Sterios. Peter is the founder of Manduka. He is a pioneer of the modern yoga movement and one of the most popular yoga teachers trainers in the US for the last four decades. And on this episode of the podcast, we are talking about what it was like to create and found Manduka, what it was like to step away from that business, how his teaching has evolved over the last four decades, as well as what it's been like to write his newest book, which is Gravity and Grace, How to Awaken your subtle body and the healing power of yoga. So Peter has a ton of experience, a ton of knowledge to share, and we cover a lot of different things on this episode of the show. One thing I would love for you to note is that Peter and I actually recorded this back earlier in 2020 before the pandemic hit, before COVID-19 was over on this side of the world impacting us so heavily. So if you hear anything that sounds a little bit weird in terms of where we are at now, please just know that that's because we recorded many months ago. All right, without further ado, here's Peter. Welcome to the show today, Peter. I'm really excited to have you here with me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to dive into this conversation. And the first thing I'm curious about is where are you joining me from today?
1: Uh, San Luis Obispo, California.
0: Amazing. And can you tell me a little bit about your background, your yoga story? What first got you interested in yoga?
1: Sure. Um, I, uh, came from a a very traditional middle-class family. Yoga was probably the furthest thing from my mind when it kind of dropped in my lap. And the curiosity, I was at university uh, here in San Luis Obispo uh, in architecture school and was literally just walking by through the rec center, walking by a door that was partially ajar. And for whatever reason, uh, I poked my head in it was just the weirdest thing and of course it was uh, opened the door into this this is in the late 70s it poked my head into this room full of women doing yoga with no context for what Favored. And and just in this naive, in a way, kind of rude way, I said, "What are you guys doing?" You know, right in the middle of class. So the teacher was so polite and said, it, "It's yoga." And, and I said, "What's that?" And she said, "You know, it's a, it's type of exercise. You want to try it?" And in the shock of being called to try it right then in that moment, I, I was stunned, and and yet. Something inside me said, sure, when's the next class? And she said, Come back next week. So I I came back that next week and and that first class was like many people have in their first experience of yoga, it was life-changing. You know, it was challenging, it was a workout, it, it was hard, and yet at the end of the class, it was Powerful, and I felt the effects immediately. And it wasn't like I committed to like full on practice of yoga, but I found myself going more and more to that class. And and when I left college, graduated from college, uh, things just lined up for me to continue practicing yoga.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And I love just thinking about like as a teacher, <laughs> it's so funny to I think know, about imagine- somebody poking their head in and being like hello what are
1: you doing <laughs> exactly
0: you're um, like uh we're, we're being zen right now could you not talk
1: <laughs> yeah and and what's amazing to me in that moment and i don't even remember who the teacher was um what was amazing at the moment was how calm she was about this rude interruption to you know right in the middle of her class and uh yeah, I I'm so grateful for her, and I I one day hopefully maybe connect paths with her again. Who knows?
0: Yeah, I love that. And so, at what point did you decide, like, hey, I want to become a yoga teacher?
1: Uh, that actually wasn't a decision I made, and I'll, I'll tell you how this happened. I I um graduated from college, and I I went to the East Coast for a job, and I met someone uh, that. Uh, introduced me to uh, a place called Santa Fe, New Mexico. And after this job on the East Coast, I found myself traveling to Santa Fe just to visit. And Santa Fe was this magical place that I had no idea even existed before I went. And I decided to stay there. And, And so I interviewed for a job. And this job... Uh, one of the requirements for the job was that I had to try out for the local Santa Fe rugby team because the boss where I was getting a job as an architect was the captain of the team now this is such a weird story because that that uh, requirement for the job I said sure I was an athlete so I said yeah I'll try it and the team that I played for won a national championship and got invited to New Zealand I go to New Zealand and uh, in New Zealand, I meet this teacher that I end up studying with actually for 20 years. After eight years in New Zealand, it's time to go home. And my teacher says, why why don't you go to India? I I think you'd enjoy studying with the teacher I studied with. And I said, yeah, I, I don't have any big plans. I'll do that. And I set aside a year of my life to study in India near the end of that year uh, uh, the school secretary uh, at this institute of yoga asked me if i would do him a favor and i said and and he he cut me a lot of slack when i arrived in india He, he gave me opportunities that i really appreciated and so i felt like i'd like to return the favor and i would do anything for him and and he asked me i have a friend who's got a health condition and he's he's too afraid to come to this institute because of the te- the main teacher's reputation and i w- i would like you to go teach him a private yoga class and that was probably the only thing that he could have asked me that i wasn't prepared to do and and so i said listen i'm not a teacher uh, even though I've been here a year, I, I'm just here studying and trying to learn. And he, he said, no, you, you are a teacher. And what you have to do is just be authentic and go into that situation and share with this friend of mine what you know. So sure enough, I agreed. And uh, literally the next day, um, I'm at my little apartment in Pune, India. And this limousine, old Bentley white limousine shows up. and the driver doesn't speak a word of english i get in the car i i go out in the country with this guy and we pull up to this literally gated compound with military guards and things and i'm thinking wow where am i going and it was a a, a officer in one of the military forces of india who um had you know heart high blood pressure heart disease and um We instantly connected, and for the remaining month, like a month and a half that I had left um, at at the uh, Institute, um, I gave him weekly yoga classes, and it was a powerful learning experience for me. And I I thought that was the first moment that I thought, well, maybe, maybe this is something that I can do. And when I got back to California, I came back to San Luis Obispo, And even though yoga was ramping up in in the States, this is now the kind of early 90s, um, there was no yoga studio in San Luis Obispo. So I started teaching one class and then that one class grew to three classes. And the next thing you know, we're we're looking for a space and we opened the first yoga center here, you know, 20 some odd years ago. So that's kind of in the back door, so to speak. I never did a teacher training other than just going to India for a year and learning and wow uh, yeah
0: yeah it's amazing it's so interesting to think about i guess just the world of yoga now and the world of yoga then and you know i feel like going to india for a year and and studying and learning and really being immersed is certainly you know enough time to be able to say hey i can teach this now in fact it's more than the average yoga teacher would probably Probably learn in an average two hundred hour training, but I'm I'm kind of curious just from like your experience of coming into being a yoga teacher that way and what you see now in the yoga world. Can you just kind of touch on touch on that a little bit?
1: Sure, sure. I I think um, this industry of yoga teaching at the moment is uh, going through some growing pains. Let's call it because I. I feel like students, and I'll look at my teacher trainings for example. Um, I would say over the last ten to fifteen years of teaching teacher trainings, that I would say as many as eighty percent of those people who are coming never teach, and and I I was curious about that, and I and during the writing of my book, I I did some research into it, and I think what what I see is students are looking for more what they get in the average weekly yoga class. And there's really no place other than maybe going to India. There's really no place uh, easy to uh, concentrate, study and get something beyond what's offered in a traditional or, or a modern yoga class. So the teacher training um Commodity, let's call it, is their only choice, and especially the 200-hour trainings. Um, it, it's where students who are interested in learning more about the intricacies of yoga—that's their only, really, their only choice. So, what's what's the challenge right now is because of the explosive growth of um, yoga in general. There's a high demand for teachers. And of course, these 200-hour teachers that are recently graduated, they they have some basic tools, but they, they lack some of the just life experience that is so necessary for being a competent yoga teacher. And yes, you know, there's um, this fitness, physical element of hatha yoga that you know, many many graduates are capable of teaching, but it yoga is so much more than that. So that that's the biggest difference that I see right now is that you know, a lot of what's being taught as yoga is, um, in a way, uh, it it's a doorway into a bigger world. But once you pass in and through that doorway, the choices are. Um, Let's see li- a little bit limited and and where where do we go from here um that's also a good question so um i don't necessarily have a great answer for that
0: yeah yeah no absolutely i definitely you know hear what you're saying and i think that you tackled that wonderfully so thank you for thank you for answering that because it's definitely i mean it's tough it's like you know that the world of yoga is changing especially in the west and i know there's lots of conversation happening right now about you know, how how to deal with all of that. And I, I don't know that there's like one correct answer, but there's definitely it's it's great to hear from somebody who's been in the industry for so long. And so one of the things that I'm curious about, you know, just learning more about you and reading your bio and all that stuff, you've done so much since you started in this industry. And I'm curious if you can kind of walk me through your career. So you started teaching while you're over in India. You came home, you opened a center. And then, you know, what kind of happened next? Like when did (laughs) Manduka become a thing? When did you launch your DVD? All that good stuff.
1: Wow, Amanda, this is, I mean... We'll we'll give you the condensed version, um, because that would be uh, that whole story would take for for hours. I know uh, it's
0: your it's your life's work, really.
1: (laughs) In a nutshell, so I I came back. uh, The reason that I was able to return to San Luis Obispo because it's a small town and jobs are pretty thin. uh, I got a job as an architect, which is what I graduated college from, uh, and what was uh that was kind of my bread and butter let's call it to to be able to then start a yoga studio so literally right across the street from where my architecture office was um was this building that we ended up renting and and building a it was literally a community center and it was very convenient for me i lived three blocks from where my architecture office was my yoga studio was across the street and and things were going well, except I was working about sixty-hour weeks as you know, kind of a regular thing, and that's not sustainable. And 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 yet, in the midst of all that, then um, Manduka starts, and so now, you know, how did that happen? L- literally, my teacher of twenty years, uh, who started coming to the states to teach, he was from Australia, um, he showed up one year with this thick black mat and I'm going what what is that and he said this is a a mat the new yoga mat and I said where'd you get it and he said in Germany and I said how do I get one and he says here here's a phone number call my friend Klaus so I I call Klaus in Germany from California and I say hey Klaus how can I get one of these mats and he said no problem I'm happy to sell to you first order $25,000, you know, like he wasn't going to just sell me one mat. He wanted to start something in the U S and so I considered it for a day. And and then I got back to him and I said, okay, I'm in. So now I've got kind of three businesses to manage. And you know, that, that lasted, that kind of scenario lasted for about 10 years and I learned a lot. uh, And I, I saw a lot and ultimately uh, that unsustainability of a lifestyle like that caught up with me and I I got some uh, you know serious diagnosis um, and my health and th- those light bulb moments come up just in the nick of time sometimes and for me that's what it was it was like okay what's what's got to give here and that's when my life started to change and it, it wasn't easy. And I, I talk about this a little bit in the book. Some of those journeys after that moment were painful and, um, and it, it took me, you know, into the depths of, um, I, I guess you might say despair, uh, feeling this, uh, loss of, um, um, let's see, loss of direction. And what I was blessed with and graced with, in a way, was just enough understanding to, instead of trying to fix it, is to just kind of ride it and and see where life's circumstances took me. And I really in, initially wasn't doing it consciously. It was more out of mm-hmm. just lack of any creativity how to solve the problems that I was experiencing and then I started to see a pattern in it and I started to trust it and it and it really is something as we go through life to just trust the process and and be as present as you can in whatever you're going through with an open mind and in a way um this Uh, presence in a way that you, uh, feel intimately everything you're going through and see how it changes. And and that, that's was a powerful thing for me. And, And if I just go back into some of the study that I've done in yoga, it's, it's this non attachment thing. It's, it's like as we experience some of these things, um, the the very nature of things is change. Uh, Nothing is statically constant. So how how much patience do we have to watch and see how it changes? And how do we respond as it changes without giving up in in a creative way?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really interesting as you're talking, I was thinking about how, as you know yoga teachers and just as humans in general a lot of the time you know we have these great ambitions and we build these businesses and i mean you had you know three businesses going on which is absolutely insane but you know big successful businesses and you're managing all of this and then your body just turns around and says no we're not doing this anymore and exactly. it's interesting how our practice of yoga becomes like such an important part in the business side of things because we have to listen to what our bodies say but then there's also this like I don't want to abandon this like thing that I grew like this business that I've been working on which is you know I feel like that's like one of probably the hardest things in life
1: well what's interesting if I take manduka as an yeah. example so I I stepped away and I I sold most of my shares in that company and um 15 years later I get a phone call from the new owners it's it's changed hands about three or four times and the new owners say you know we need you back would you come back you know so it's really for me it's this full circle um I'm I'm back working for the company uh in two roles one is a kind of global ambassador and it it really is a special company and it's it's you know, gone through its ups and downs, but the current management team is really connected to the legacy of this company and the culture that the first company created. And that that's such a satisfying feeling for me that there's still value in what we started there. And the other role is I'm, you know, helping their product development team. And one of the projects we're working on is a post petrochemical yoga mat. And that's a big job. And uh, it's, it's been frustrating a little bit at the moment because it's, it's, it costs money to do that kind of research. And it's, it's not a linear process. It's kind of one step forward, two steps back sometimes. And, but we're committed to it and we're doing it. And we have had some wonderful breakthroughs. So I'm hopeful that that's going to produce something in the next year or so.
0: Yeah, yeah. What is a post-petrol yoga mat? like? What does that mean?
1: At the moment, the polymers that are used to create yoga mats, even so-called natural rubber yoga mats, all have fillers and chemicals in them that um, are petrochemical, Um, some kind of carbon petrochemical material that's either toxic in terms of the standards that are set for certain products or even though they're um advertised as biodegradable there is no such thing as a hundred percent biodegradable mat and what what i feel is important especially with global warming is that we eliminate uh this carbon intensive uh, material out of the manufacture of yoga mats. And so that's the goal. And there are other companies, you know, in, in other industries that are, you know, doing the same research. It just seems to be lacking in the yoga sphere. So um, I, I think that Manduka's legacy is one that has this environmental commitment and we're working to, you know, have another, uh, part of our legacy be a truly non-petrochemical yoga man
0: oh wow that's amazing thanks for thanks for sharing that and i feel like that's an incredible initiative it's interesting i actually have a my husband and i both have the manduka EcoLite. Travel mats, just because we yeah. travel a lot, and I mean, as you know, yoga mats can get so heavy. It's like one of those things where <laughs> it can weigh more than your carry-on sometimes. And we love those mats, so I can actually see it right now from where we're talking, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and I love the initiatives that you know the company's continuing to do. And one of the things that I'm curious about from what you've been talking about is, you know, when you're working on a project or with a company, and you've got a bunch of other stuff on the go, how do you decide? like when to step away and when to take on new projects. Like, what does that kind of look like for you?
1: I, I, I'm just, um, it, it's, I don't really have a process. It, I have trusted when my intuition, when projects come up, I, I just, sit with myself for a while and ask, is this how I want to commit my energy moving forward? And I have had amazing success with not too much overlap with projects. Um, I mean, right now is a a perfect example. Uh, And and I can't say that I'm, you know, an expert at it, but I'm still actively an architect working on uh, various projects uh, to just completed And one just about to start a, a large yoga studio in Los Angeles, the interior design of it. Um, I'm still, you know, I'm now an author with, with writing this book for Sounds True and out on the road. Uh, I'm teaching a regular weekly yoga class here in San Luis Obispo, but I've had to cut back a little bit on that. And uh, and then I've got this job with Manduka, which isn't full-time, it's, it's kind of part-time, and So far, knock on wood, you know everything is a nice balance. Although, as you know, you know, like sometimes emails slide under the radar, getting a crack somewhere, but I usually find them and respond to them, and uh, and yeah, it's it's just uh, what I find. My life, if if I look back and reflect on life, my life has been this string of coincidences that, that uh, all I had to do really is show up and be present with this, this situation and be aware of what was unfolding and then respond intuitively. I, I'm not a big intention setter. Um, as a matter of fact, I I'm more, if I do anything, I just maybe am in a state of meditation or prayer. And I just, Open to possibility in a way, and and then wait and and see how it plays out.
0: That's amazing. I think that that's a really you know beautiful practice, and I love how you're talking about you know kind of the the intuition and trusting your gut. And I feel like sometimes there's just things that we can't plan for. I mean, illness is definitely one of those. But then on the other side of that, you know, opportunities can slide into your email at any point. And I love the idea of sitting in you know, our practices, meditation, prayer. I really love journaling. So that's, that's one for me that's super helpful with making big decisions and just kind of trusting if it's the right time and the right opportunity and all that sort of thing.
1: I have a, I have a little quick story if you've got time for it about emails sliding in, uh, you know, kind of crazy circumstances or crazy coincidences. So, um, I, got an email from uh sounds true just out of the blue and i and i almost deleted it it was in my spam folder and um because i was on their newsletter list i just thought it was a, a newsletter and i don't know about you but i get so many newsletters now i don't even have the time to open them let alone delete them sometimes you know so so anyway i'm i'm about to delete this email from sounds true thinking it was a newsletter but in the subject box it said Gravity and Grace, which is the name of my DVDs. And it was like, wait, Sounds True is using my, you know, my little trademark name for my DVDs. What's going on? So I opened up the email and it's this acquisitions editor uh, at Sounds True writing me a personal email saying, hey, we, we saw the title of your workshop at Esalen uh, on, in Big Sur. Um, would you be interested in writing a book about that title? And it was like, Wow uh, you know and so I you know was excited and I, I showed my wife I said look at this you know and I I'd written 1500 word articles but this is like a 65,000 word book that they were asking me to write and I I didn't feel like I had the ability and and so I emailed them back and I said yes I'd love to let's talk more well what I didn't know, that email had been in my spam folder for three months. What I didn't know is at the time was if you answer an email that's been tagged spam, when you send the reply, in some servers it's also identified as spam. So my reply went in this editor. It sounds true, spam folder for another month, and uh, and so you know I never heard back from him. And I thought. I was a little depressed, and and I was literally teaching in Iceland, and my wife one day asked me, what's wrong with you? And I said, oh, I'm a little sad, and she goes, why? And I said, oh, it sounds true, never responded to me, I guess they found someone else, you know, it's the woe is me, little self-pity thing, and she said, well, did you think about writing them back? And I, I said, no, you know, they probably get... You know, authors trying to pitch books all the time, blah, blah, blah. She said, no, write them back. So I wrote them back, started a new email, wrote them back. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So that was one of those amazing coincidences for me that manifested itself into something really magical. The book, for me, was a process that really uncovered a lot of... um, gaps, let's say, in my understanding of yoga, because I was forced to put it into words. And that research that came about has, uh, in a way, manifested in a book that really uh, brings together 45 years of doing yoga for me, and in a contemporary way.
0: Yeah! Wow, that's an incredible story. I'm glad that you did share that, and it's a reminder to not dismiss things in our spam. And <laughs> it's also crazy. It's crazy how you know email works, and that it went back into spam. And I'm glad your wife encouraged you to write again. So that, I feel like that's another reminder. Like if there's somebody that you want to get in contact with and you haven't heard from them, just send another email.
1: That same thing just happened this morning. I got up early, you know, and I, I was. I don't know if I checked your emails yesterday. I was looking for an email from you. And turns out um, it's, an, it's a, a text message from a guy I had written an email to um, a month and a half ago who uh, is uh, one of the curators for TEDx. And I, I wanted to see if they would be open to having me um, post a talk. And here out of the blue is this text Um like, hey, I got your email, and I see that you're going to be in Sedona this weekend. Let's talk. So I had written that off, like you know, I have, you don't hear back from them for a month from someone, and then there it is. So I, I think it's powerful if we if we just, in a way, let things be as they are and respond in the moment when something changes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Hi everyone, we're just taking a quick break from the show to talk about Offering Tree. If you're looking to get your yoga classes online in a hurry, I recommend checking out Offering Tree. They make it easy to schedule and take payments for online classes with Zoom, Skype, YouTube, and other video conferencing tools. Offering Tree set out to make creating your digital presence fun, easy, and affordable. With one account, you can create a website in minutes with email marketing tools to collect email addresses, allowing you to send newsletters and automated emails to your subscribers. It all works seamlessly together with one account and one subscription. Forget spending all your time and energy just trying to remember what each account does and what your login information is. On top of that, OfferingTree has an embedded scheduling feature, so if you already have a website that you love, you can use it for online payments and scheduling. To learn more about what Offering Tree can do for your digital presence, visit OfferingTree.com forward slash MBM. Offering Tree has been supporting MBM for over a year now, and I not only love the product, but I also love the people. Offering Tree is providing special pricing for MBM listeners, so be sure to visit OfferingTree.com forward slash MBM. That's OfferingTree.com forward slash MBOM to receive the discount. Alright, now back to the episode. And before you ever heard from the company, had you considered writing a book? Like, was that something that was on your mind?
1: Um, I had a a period in my life um, that uh, had a lot of uh, loss. Let's call it. And and at the time, I was recently divorced and uh, having trouble sleeping and. And so I would be up in the middle of the night with kind of nothing except that emptiness in my mind to deal with. And, and I, I said, well, if I'm either going to be depressed or I'm going to get up and do a yoga you know, practice. And so I started practicing. And literally, I would practiced six, for six hours through the night. And during that time, I I'd uncovered things in my practice that – I just kept a little journal beside me and I would write these little cryptic notes down as these insights would kind of drop in from who knows where. And so I, I had over two years, I had this five journals filled with these kind of cryptic notes that was when I actually had that Email from Sounds True. I went back and I, I looked at these notes, and it was going to be a big job to first of all read some of my handwriting, and then second of all try to organize it. But that—that's how you know that was the seed of the book is those journals, and I have had a very unusual yogic path in, in addition to studying a very. Traditional Iyengar Yoga, which uh, I was in India for uh, and and studied with my teacher of twenty years. I also, uh, while I was in India, right before I left, did a ten-day Vipassana course, and that Vipassana course had as a profound effect on my understanding of yoga as you know the year living in India and and for me that that's what. Shifted for me. I I started to see that um, what I had thought was yoga up to that meditation retreat was just, in a way, preliminary exercises for this deeper work, which has to do with the inseparable nature of our mind and our body. Like, I think up to that point, uh, before Vipassana, I thought I had a uh, an understanding of how my body influenced my mind. But I don't think I had a great grasp of how my mind influences my body. And that Vipassana course helped me bridge that um, gap. And, and it's informed what my book is about in a, in a big way, in an equal way to what my physical practice of yoga has been.
0: Yeah, wow. That's incredible. And I I feel like for a lot of people, you know, writing a book is something that's maybe on their goals or something that they feel like they might want to do maybe even a bucket list item you might say and i i i think for a lot of people there's like a lot of things that maybe hold them back the the fear of actually putting something out there i mean the actual time of writing i'm curious what the process of like putting your whole book together was like and i know you've touched on it a little bit but i'd love to hear like what that writing process was like especially with a busy schedule like i mean life doesn't stop for you to write a book i would imagine
1: oh man i'm just cracking up Because um, writing a book was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And it took my relationship with my wife to the edge. It took my relationship with my daughter to the edge. Um, It it tested my friendships with a lot of people because of my, um, like I would be, uh, at an event or with a, in a gathering of people, and I me, mean, my body was there, but my mind wasn't there. And people, you know, after the fact would come back to me and you know share with me, you know, you, you were you've been gone for the last three and a half years. It was a three and a half year process, and, and I'll, the the chaos of busyness didn't help. And the at the end of the first year of writing. Uh, was a, a big shift where we sold our studio here in San Luis Obispo, our yoga studio, because of a redevelopment in our area. And, and it, we took it as an opportunity to um, travel for six months with our daughter, take her out of school and homeschool her on the road. And so we, were, we, we spent a month in Nicaragua and a month in Brazil and a month in Argentina. And then we spent almost four months in New Zealand. And until we got to New Zealand, though, I was trying to write, and I had a suitcase full of books and um, my laptop, And but we were staying in these, um, a lot of them were Airbnbs or places that just had one room and a bathroom, and I made a promise to my family that I would only write at night. Well, at night, I was exhausted um, because we'd usually be doing something fun during the day, so... I'm a morning person, so I'd get up most mornings around 3.30. And the only room in these places where we were staying that had a door for privacy and sound was the bathroom. So I would set my laptop, laptop up on the toilet seat. And sit on the floor with a cushion so I'd say half of my book was written (laughs) in the bathroom with my laptop on a toilet seat so you can imagine how bad the ergonomics of that was yeah and and, you know at the end of writing I had the worst carpal tunnel in my hands just from because I'm not a fast typer and I I also broke probably every rule of book writing in that I didn't write, you know, um, an hour. Like most seminars you go to, say, write at least an hour every day to keep the juices flowing, blah, blah, blah. Well, unfortunately for me, it was more like I would write seven days, like four to five hours a day and then not write for a week or two and and so this process was what was painful for me like in those periods of time when i wasn't writing it wasn't that i wasn't thinking about the book and and that was also hard because then i'd be up late at night sometimes not able to sleep because my mind was busy and so it that that's the kind of process i went through and in the end sounds true was so gracious they gave me two extensions on my deadlines and and then when i turned the book in they they let me work with a, uh, an editor that was someone they hired a- out of office kind of like a editing consultant and we worked another eight months to create what the finished product is and that collaboration with this amazing editor uh, who lived in Portland, I've never actually met her. Um, We've communicated a couple times by phone, but the rest of the time, it's all been through emails, just really changed the flavor of my book. And I feel like it's a very accessible book with very relatable stories, with very relatable language, which uh, I'm, I'm really pleased with.
0: Yeah. Wow. That sounds like quite the journey. I just had a perfect image of like, you know, I, I've stayed in a ton of Airbnbs as a traveler myself, and just, you know, <laughs> totally imagining the the lack of ergonomics with that type of setup. And it, I feel like it's tough. It's tough in those situations for many reasons. But one of the things that I think is hard about any type of creative endeavor is, you know, the creative juices hit you when they hit you, and it's really hard when you're not like in the moment of being able to just like dive right into that, right? Like maybe it's because you're working, maybe it's because you're with your family adventuring and you're like, you can't just be like, Hey, wife and daughter, like, see you later. I got to go do this. But then yeah. it's hard when you do have that time and maybe it's not flowing as much and you, you know, there's yeah, just a exactly lot of things. the challenge.
1: And, mm-hmm. and it sounds like you have that creative bug in you as well. It is a, it's a juggling act and, I don't think I have another book in me, to be honest, Uh, but who knows, life may have other ideas.
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe it'll be like, I haven't had kids yet myself, but (laughs) I've heard that sometimes you, right after you have a child, you're like kind of traumatized and you're like, I'm never having another one. One is enough. And then, you know, two years down the road, you're like, okay, I kind of want another one. So maybe that'll be the book writing experience for you. Mm -hmm. Who knows?
1: Thank you for saying that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the things I always love to touch on in the podcast, since it is more focused towards the business side of things, is what are some of the biggest business lessons you've learned throughout your career?
1: You know, this is a great question. Literally everything that supported my success in business, I learned on a yoga mat. And, uh... Being on a yoga mat is about showing up regularly, being fully present in the moment. And that is that particular lesson was something that I seemed to be really good at in business. That I could, you know, one of the things that, that I lived by when I when Manduka started to grow, because it was a one-man company for the first year and a half, and I hired this. 14 year old boy who lived across the street to be my warehouse guy the warehouse was my garage at my house here in san luis obispo and He would come over after school and fulfill all the orders that I got and that was us That was Manduca for the first year and a half but I I feel like I was This this kind of thing that I lived by was always hire people that are smarter than you and uh And sometimes the smart wasn't necessarily analytical smartness as as much as it was emotional intelligence. And I was just blessed in those early years with really um, good-hearted people and clear communicators and uh, at points in their lives where they could go above and beyond an hourly employee and literally probably for the first 5 or 6 years of Manduka we were a four person company and uh and we had this just exponential growth in those years and we all knew each other's jobs we, if someone was sick or someone was out of town the other three would cover and the busier i got the less involved i was and My office manager was just incredibly gifted in dealing like human resources people, but she was also our sales rep. So she, she was good with customers and the legacy, let's say of Manduka is that we've always had that kind of family feel to the business where people could reach us on the phone and, it's changed a little bit on the phone, but I think for the first 10 years, when you called Manduka, you got a live person picking up the phone. And and that was something we were quite proud of. And we got great feedback. You know, I I call your competitors and all we get is an answering machine or some kind of voicemail system. And, uh, you know inevitably those kinds of things fall away, but I think the culture of Manduca is still intact, and that's been really refreshing for me to see when I go down to Los Angeles for meetings and stuff,
0: yeah. Yeah, I feel like that would be really cool to see, especially, you know, knowing where it came from and it's incredible that it started out as, you know, a distribution center if you want to call it that in your garage with somebody else helping out. I think that those stories are so amazing because I think that sometimes, you know, as a little guy, we can look at these bigger companies like Manduka and think, "Wow, they're so successful and they've always been that way." And I think it's remembering that everyone starts as a beginner, everyone starts from the beginning. Everyone starts as a little guy at one point. So I appreciate you sharing that.
1: Yeah. I never imagined that my personal legacy would be that I became this uh, seller of rubber yoga mats on the internet you know like that that was just not in the business plan when I graduated from architecture school and yet somehow being at the right place at the right time and responding in that moment to the opportunity that presented itself and then you know being uh not I mean the the it was literally trial and error like finding the right people to work for me. I would hire maybe someone that didn't work out. And a week later, the person that I would meet on the street or in the post office turns out to be what the person that I needed. But, you know, it just fell into place. And the financing was another piece. And, and how do I finance this growing company? And in those days, it was um, convenience checks on credit card offers. And I just, I had like, Eight credit cards, and I was just rotating the convenience checks to pay off what was due on each of the other ones. And I literally, I did that for years just to stay ahead. And scary moments at times when I had three thousand dollars in my personal checking account and I was in debt eighty thousand dollars, and trying to figure out how I was going to pay for inventory that was due in three days. So <laughs> those are the kinds of like craziness of a startup especially back in those days that somehow I navigated and and Manduka this company that has survived and is thriving uh, is the result of that.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Was there ever any point during the growth of Manduka that you were like thought about maybe throwing a towel in?
1: Uh, oh maybe just Two or three times a week for
0: 10,
1: <laughs> for, for ten years. Oh man! <laughs> but other than that, here's what kept me in, in in persevering is the people that were becoming this extended family for me, and it was you know if we had a job opening, we rarely advertised it because. I would just tell the people, hey, do you know anyone out there that might fill in this position? And the next thing you know, I'd have two or three candidates just from friends of our employees that I could interview. And to me, that was just made life so easy for me. And in all those years that I was running the company, I never fired anyone. I had people quit or move on or graduate from college and and leave. But uh, it was just... It, it was a magical time for that company.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And last question for you If anyone's looking to, you know, maybe write a book or is feeling inspired by that, do you have like any tips for somebody getting started with that?
1: Well, um, this process of writing for me was uh, li- literally not something that I expected. I had attended a lot of, um, training like once I got the contract which sounds true I attended some of these online courses of how to write a book and the consistent thread in a lot of them is try to write at least 60 minutes every day and I wish I could have I could tell you right now that that's what I did uh, but I, I wasn't my mind isn't set up like that and I, I tended to write um, when I felt inspired to write and sometimes I would get in the zone and, and I would just write for five hours. And that was, I think the the painful thing that was for my family is I would get into a stream of, of, of ideas and my family would say, Hey dad, it's dinner time. And I'd say, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to keep writing and I I might meet you guys. And, and that was, that was a, a education for them. You know, they, they had to learn and I had to learn to communicate when I couldn't join. And, and I think it's a it's a dance between those two things um you know writing when you have that uh stream of consciousness and just let the dimension of time get distorted and the people in your life that care about you will understand and the people that don't understand the process you're going through you know they'll they'll struggle and it might even affect the relationships um but i i I think any artist would agree with me that we we get into these spaces of creativity where it, it's our way of giving back to people. You know, like in architecture, I noticed this. When when I get into a creative space architecturally and create something that gets built that really supports creativity for the occupants who you know are in this space either as a workspace or a living space it, it it's worth it and and writing I found now because of the feedback I'm getting from the book I, I I'm I think it's also a, a reflection of the commitment that I made to to just download the creativity that was showing up for me as efficiently as I could get and then um, so I, that, that's the encouragement, I think, for anyone that's attempting to write is if you're motivated to write and the creative spark is there, follow it for as long as you can hold it. And when that creative spark isn't there, don't beat yourself up and get out in nature, get, you know, break your routine, take a break and trust that this intuitive capacity that we all have will revisit you and you will uh, start into another um, creative stream.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I've loved this conversation, Peter. You've shared so much great stuff here today. If people are interested in learning more about you, maybe checking out your book, where can they go to find all of that?
1: um the books available on uh, all leading booksellers amazon uh you know, sounds true's website and even my website which is levityyoga.com um and uh, the the book in terms of what people should expect to find is this lovely what, what i consider a lovely synthesis of my life as a yogi, and then this new science that's evolving with, uh, you know, neuroscience and neurocardiology, and even uh, inspired by these scientific writers like Bruce Lipton or Paul Pearsall, who are you know bringing kind of a new awareness to this realm where the physical and the uh, the mind meet, and. That was an unexpected thing. Uh, and, and I hope the readers that find that, if you're inclined to be uh, scientific, you'll find that the language that I use to convey these concepts and how they merge with this ancient yogic wisdom, uh, is it's something that is approachable for anyone.
0: Amazing. I cannot wait to check it out. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. And thank you so much for your time today, Peter.
1: Oh, thank you. I appreciate the time.
0: All right, everyone, I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the podcast with Peter Stereos. Make sure you go grab a copy of his book and check out more about what he's up to. Thanks again to our sponsor, Offering Tree. Head on over to offeringtree.com forward slash MBOM to get an exclusive discount for listeners. Thank you so, so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Namaste. Thank you so much for tuning in for this episode of the podcast. To find links, notes, resources, and everything mentioned in today and all episodes of the show, you can head on over to mbomyoga.com. You can find the podcast and myself on Facebook and social media at Mastering the Business of Yoga. And I would love for you to join the private Facebook community, Yoga Business Badass.